Welcome back to the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide podcast. We've been on a longer hiatus from production than I anticipated, but we finally got it together and we're rolling once again. This edition is dedicated to a discussion of what has turned out to be one of the most difficult areas of the criminal law, how prosecutors need to go about proving prior convictions when we want to prove the conviction to a judge instead of a jury in light of recent California case law interpreting the United States Supreme Court 2013 decision in DeComp versus the United States. This IPG podcast is approved for 50 minutes of self-study general MCLE credit. My guest for this edition of IPG is Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney Dan Federo. Dan has kindly agreed to take a short break from prosecuting homicides to assist me in discussing the latest developments in the law concerning proof of prior convictions to a judge instead of a jury. Dan, thanks very much for joining me. Jeff, thank you for having me. I know proving up prior convictions in California, particularly in the case of convictions from out of state, where the elements may not line up nicely like ours, is an evolving area of constitutional law and has been the subject of recent court decisions. And I'm glad that I'm asking the questions today rather than answering them. That is how it's going to proceed for the duration of the podcast. So, Dan, uh, you're going to be taking over as interviewer. And what's your first question? Well, Jeff, uh, we are going to need to lay some groundwork before we start digging into some of the most pressing questions regarding recent developments in the area of proving priors to a court. So with that in mind, perhaps you could give a brief description of the current statutory framework for proving prior convictions in California. Prosecutors are often handling cases in which they need to prove that a defendant has previously suffered a conviction because if they prove it up, it can increase the amount of time a defendant can be kept in custody or otherwise punished. Unlike when it comes to substantive offenses, though, the statutory right to jury trial on a prior conviction is more limited than the statutory right to jury trial on the substantive offense itself. Under the current version of Penal Code Sections 1025B and 1158, when only the bare fact of the prior conviction is at issue, the judge makes a determination of identity, that the defendant is the person who actually suffered the conviction. The judge then instructs the jury to the effect that the defendant is the person whose name appears on the documents that are admitted to establish a conviction. And then it's left to the jury to determine whether the documents are authentic, and if so, are sufficient to establish that the convictions the defendant suffered are indeed the ones that have been alleged. Jeff, in determining whether a defendant is subject to increased punishment on the basis of a prior conviction, it sometimes is necessary to examine the record of the earlier proceeding to determine whether it involves the type of qualifying prior conviction that authorizes increased punishment under the applicable sentencing statute. Who is tasked with this determination under California law? Well, California courts have said that in view of the unusual and somewhat specialized nature of the inquiry that that has to be conducted for this purpose, an examination that is strictly limited to a review and interpretation of documents that are part of the record of the prior criminal proceeding, it's the court rather than the jury that has the duty of making the determination. Under California law, does the judge resolve disputed issues of fact relating to the defendant's prior conduct? No. 
The judge is not tasked with trying to assess whether a defendant actually engaged in the conduct that was the basis for the conviction. The question is whether the records reflect the conviction qualifies as an enhancing prior. All right. Can you give us some example, then, of what type of determinations are questions for the court under the statutory scheme for proving prior convictions? Sure. Take, for example, Penal Code Section 667A1, uh, the five-year prior statute, which adds an additional five years in state prison uh, to a defendant's sentence for each prior conviction of a serious felony listed in Penal Code Section 1192.7c or of uh, any offense that is committed in another jurisdiction, which includes all the elements of any serious felony in California, so long as those prior convictions stem from charges brought and tried separately. Whether the charges leading to multiple prior convictions have been brought and tried separately within the meaning of of 667A1 is a matter for the court, because that question is largely legal in nature, even though it's not entirely legal in nature. Whether an offense qualifies as a strike prior as well, in other words, a serious or violent felony conviction, is also a question for the court. What about prison priors? Penal Code Section 667.5, subsection B, which adds on one year to a sentence for each prior separate prison term or county jail term imposed under Penal Code Section 1170, subsection H. If the term has been served, meaning completed, and the defendant has remained free for a period of five years of both the commission of an offense, which results in a felony conviction, and prison custody or the imposition of a term of jail custody imposed under subdivision H of section 1170, felony sentence that is not suspended, and I'm reading from the statute here. Are all the aspects of section 667.5 proved to the court? Well, both Calcum and Calgic suggest or or assume these ancillary aspects of section 667.5 like whether the defendant has remained free uh, from conviction or custody for five years, should be proved to a jury. However, it's actually somewhat of an open question. In People v. EPSA, California Supreme Court decision from back in 2001, the court expressed doubt that a jury should be deciding whether the element of Section 667.5 that the defendant has been sentenced to prison has actually been met. All right. So we've been talking about the statutory right to jury trial and prior convictions. But what the show is really about is what must be proved to the jury as dictated by the federal constitution. The Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution says in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury. Does that right apply to both trial on substantive offenses as well as enhancements? Yes. Under a series of decisions, beginning with Apprendi versus New Jersey in 2000, The United States Supreme Court has established that the 14th Amendment right to due process and the 6th Amendment right to trial by jury together require that any fact used to increase the sentence of a criminal defendant beyond the maximum term permitted by the conviction of the charged offense alone must be proved to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. And this holds true whether the fact at issue is considered an element of the charged offense or is characterized as an enhancement or a sentencing factor. Well, prior convictions are facts used to increase the sentence of a criminal defendant beyond the maximum term permitted by conviction of the charged offense alone. So is there a Sixth Amendment right to jury trial on prior convictions? You would think so if the general principle established in Apprendi were applied. 
But the answer is no. Why not? Because in Apprendi, the High Court actually declined to apply the general requirement of jury trial to facts increasing a defendant's sentence to prior convictions. The reason uh, the Apprendi Court qualified the general rule was because it continued to recognize that in an earlier decision called Almendares Torres, the court held that the fact of a prior conviction may be found by a judge, even if it increases the statutory maximum sentence. They recognized this exception even though they expressed significant doubt that such a distinction should even be drawn between prior convictions and all other types of enhancements. Why was an exception to the general rule carved out in Almendrez Torres for priors? Well, for several reasons. The fact a defendant is a recidivist is different from other matters employed to enhance punishment because, and they listed like three uh, reasons, recidivism traditionally has been used by sentencing courts, sentencing courts to increase the length of an offender's sentence. It doesn't relate to the commission of the charged offense, and prior convictions result from proceedings that already include substantial protections. So there is this narrow exception. It's referred to as the Almendarez Torres exception. And in 2006, the California Supreme Court in People versus McGee specifically held a criminal defendant did not have a right under the federal constitution to a jury to uh, examine the record of a prior criminal proceeding to determine whether the earlier conviction subjects the defendant to an increased sentence when that conviction does not itself establish on the face whether or not the conviction constituted a qualifying prior conviction for purposes of the uh, relevant sentencing statute. What was the specific issue in McGee? In McGee, the question was whether a, uh, a pair of robbery convictions in Nevada qualified as a serious felony priors or strikes under California Three Strikes Law, where there was a difference in the actual elements of the crime of robbery between Nevada and California. The McGee majority held the judge made this decision notwithstanding Apprendi, the decision as to whether or not these actual elements uh, matched up. It noted in that case that the review undertaken by the, by the trial court is simply to determine whether the record adequately shows what crime the defendant either pled to or was found guilty of. It doesn't, though, require the judge to make an independent determination regarding a disputed issue of fact relating to the defendant's prior conduct. So does the Sixth Amendment allow the prosecution to not only prove the bare fact of the conviction, but other facts about the conviction to a court as opposed to a jury? Or do we have something else to worry about? We do actually have plenty of things to worry about. Uh, first of all, the Almendora's Torres exception, it's hanging around by a thread, uh, and it would be completely eliminated if Justice Thomas had his way. Now, keep in mind, the Almendora's Torres decision, it was a 5-4 decision, and Justice Thomas was in the majority. And ever since, I guess out of a feeling of guilt for, for ruling that way, he's expressed a lot of remorse over his decision and has repeatedly written that he now believes that prior convictions that enhance a sentence beyond the statutory maximum must be proved to a jury. In fact, even in the California Supreme Court case in McGee, which we were talking about earlier, the, 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 the majority acknowledged that if the high court were given the chance, it could find uh, that allowing a court to determine anything beyond the bare minimum fact of the conviction would violate the Sixth Amendment. Most other justices, though, simply want to pare the exception down to its bare minimum. 
More importantly, though, there's dicta in a post-McGee decision by the United States Supreme Court called DeCamp versus the United States, uh, United States Supreme Court decision called DeCamp versus the United States, that has created serious questions about, one, whether the Amandaris-Torres exception uh, allows proof of ancillary facts about the conviction to be proved to a court instead of a jury, or only applies to proof of the bare fact of the conviction itself, and two, what documents can be considered in assessing whether a conviction qualifies in an, as, a, as an enhancement, for example, where a prior conviction from out of state uh, might or might not qualify as a serious or violent felony. Even more importantly, there are several new California appellate court cases that have glommed on to this language into comp to either suggest or specifically hold that the Sixth Amendment prevents a court from deciding anything about a prior conviction beyond the bare fact of the conviction, absent a waiver of the constitutional right to jury trial on the prior conviction by the defendant. What was de Comp all about, and what is it about that case that has generated such concern that the manner in which we currently prove prior convictions is unconstitutional? Okay. In de Comp, the defendant was charged with a federal offense, and he was alleged to have suffered several prior convictions that could enhance his sentence under... Uh, a federal act called the Armed Career Criminal Act. We're just going to refer to it as the ACCA for purposes of this podcast. That act provided a sentence enhancement for a defendant who was convicted of certain federal offenses after suffering three prior convictions for certain designated crimes, including the crime of, quote, burglary. One of the convictions in DeComp was for burglary, and it was based on a conviction in California for violating Penal Code Section 459, the general burglary statute. Did the elements of the burglary statute in California match the elements of burglary under the ACCA? No. The United States Supreme Court has an adopted an interpretation of the ACCA uh, as to what constitutes a burglary under the statute, which they call uh, the generic burglary. And the elements of a generic burglary are unlawful or unprivileged entry into or remaining in a building or structure with intent to commit a crime. Why doesn't the California burglary statute constitute a generic burglary? Because in California, our statute doesn't require unlawful or unprivileged entry as required for the crime to be considered a generic burglary under the ACCA. But many burglary convictions in California do, in fact, involve a defendant who actually engaged in conduct matching the elements of generic burglary under the federal statute, right? Yeah, and in the federal district court, the prosecution attempted to prove to the judge in this uh, case that defendant had been convicted of a crime that qualified as a generic burglary by introducing certain documents, including the record of the plea colloquy, to show the defendant had actually admitted the elements of a generic burglary when entering his plea. The transcript of the plea colloquy showed the prosecutor had had proffered that the crime had involved the breaking and entering of a grocery store, and the defendant uh, failed to object to that statement. Was it okay for the judge to make this decision instead of the jury and rely on the transcript of the plea colloquy? Not according to the United States Supreme Court. Why not? Well, to understand why not, I'm going to have to explain uh, a pair of earlier cases from the high court dealing with what a court can look at and trying to figure out whether a state conviction for burglary fits into this generic definition of burglary. The first was Taylor versus United States from the 90s. 
And it said if the defendant was convicted of burglary in a state where the generic definition had been adopted, then the trial court need only find that the state statute corresponds in substance to the generic meaning of burglary. The trial court doesn't get to generally look at anything other than the fact of the conviction and the statutory definition of the prior offense. On the other hand, if the defendant was convicted of burglary in a state where the statute does not match the generic definition, for example, where the state burglary statute included entry into an automobile as well as a building, which that doesn't match up the generic elements, the prior conviction could still be used to enhance if the indictment or information and jury instructions showed that the defendant was charged only with the burglary of a building and that the jury necessarily had to find an entry of a building to convict. In other words, the prior conviction may still be used to enhance and the sentencing court can go beyond the mere fact of conviction in a narrow range of cases if the jury in that prior case was actually required to find all the elements of a generic burglary. In that circumstance, the sentencing court may consider the charging paper and jury instructions to see if the jury was actually required to find all the elements of a generic burglary in order to convict the defendant. Now, sometime around 2005, in Shepard versus the United States, there was another US Supreme Court uh, decision uh, where the court addressed a very similar question, finding that if the conviction stemmed from a guilty plea instead of a trial, and the state conviction on its face didn't meet the elements of a generic burglary, a court could look beyond the statutory elements to see if the defendant had actually admitted to a burglary meeting the generic federal uh, definition. However, they said the trial court would generally be limited to examining the statutory definition, charging documents, the written plea agreement, transcript of the plea colloquy, and any explicit factual finding by the trial judge to which the defendant assented. So the main issue in DeCamp was the limit of the scope of this rule that courts could look at other documents to assess whether a state conviction qualified as a generic burglary. So what did the high court rule in DeCamp? Well, they said there are two approaches a court can take when deciding whether a prior conviction qualifies as an enhancing prior. In this circumstance, whether the prior conviction qualified as a generic burglary. One of those approaches has become known as, that's what, this is what they call it, a categorical approach, that's what they call it. And it simply involves comparing the elements of the statute forming the basis of the defendant's conviction with the elements of the generic crime as that offense is, is commonly understood. Under this approach, the only thing a sentencing court considers is a document showing the conviction for a violation of the particular statute then the sentencing court checks to see if the elements of the particular statute are the same as the elements of the generic offense, or the statute could not be violated, or, or if, basically, the statute couldn't be violated without necessarily proving the elements of the generic offense. Okay, what was the other approach then? That's known as the modified categorical approach. Under that approach, a sentencing court can consult a limited class of documents, such as indictments and jury instructions, if the conviction stems from a trial, or plea agreements or transcripts of the colloquy between the judge and the defendant if, the if, if this conviction stemmed from a plea. Then the sentencing court gets to do what they would do under the categorical approach, compare the elements of the crime of conviction, including the alternative element used in the case, with the elements of the generic crime. 
When can a court use the modified categorical approach that you've just told us about according to DECOMP? Only basically in situations where a statute lists multiple alternative elements and so in effect creates several different crimes. If at least one, but not all of those effective crimes matches the generic version, a court needs to find a way to figure out what the defendant was actually convicted of. So the, the high court held that use of the modified categorical approach and the accompanying ability of a court to consult documents like the complaint or the transcript of a plea is limited to cases involving defendants who were previously convicted of divisible statutes. This approach cannot be used when the defendant is convicted of an indivisible statute. Jeff, is this like the difference between even and odd numbers? No, but it's an odd approach even so. What the court said is that a divisible statute is a statute that sets out one or more elements of the offense in the alternative. And one alternative matches an element of the generic offense, but the other alternative does not. And they illustrated what it means to, for a statute to be divisible by using an example of a state burglary statute where the statute could be violated either by unlawfully entering a car or unlawfully entering a building. When a statute is divisible, uh, which means it, it comprises multiple alternative versions of a crime, a later sentencing court can't tell without reviewing something more if the defendant's conviction was for the generic building or the non-generic automobile form of burglary. And what is an indivisible statute? Well, that's a statute that's not divisible. It doesn't contain alternative elements, and it ends up criminalizing a broader swath of conduct than the relevant generic offense. Did they find that the modified categorical approach should not have been used by the sentencing court to determine whether the defendant's conviction for violating Penal Code Section 459 was an enhancing prior? Yeah, in the comp, they said the state law defining burglary doesn't define it alternatively. It only defines it more broadly than the generic offense. So they said it's an indivisible statute. The generic burglary statute requires an unlawful entry along the lines of breaking and entering, but the California statute does not. So that makes the California statute an individual, an indivisible statute. Okay, wait a second. Isn't our burglary statute a divisible statute? I mean, you can violate it by entering either into a house or a car. That's true. And what makes this opinion so confusing, especially for California prosecutors, is the fact that the California burglary statute uh, PC uh, section 459 is in one sense a divisible statute since it can be violated by entry into a car or entry into a, into a home. The only reason it wasn't considered a divisible statute for purposes of the ACCA and DeComp was because it criminalized a broader swath of conduct than the generic burglary, i.e. entry into a store during business hours. Had the question been whether a California conviction for burglary qualified as a prior conviction in another state that had identical elements to the California statute, but only permitted out-of-state burglary convictions of structures to be used to enhance, then in that circumstance, the California burglary statute would have been considered a divisible statute for purposes of that out-of-state statute. The DeCamp court stated whether the defendant did break and enter by the way, makes no difference. And likewise, whether he ever admitted to breaking and entering is irrelevant. They said a court only gets to review the plea colloquy 
or other approved uh, documents when a statute defines burglary not as in the case before it, over broadly, but instead alternatively with one statutory phrase corresponding to the generic crime and another not. So when the district court, in this case of Decomp, enhanced the defendant's sentence based on his uh, acquiescence to a prosecutorial statement that he broke and entered, they said that's irrelevant to the crime charged. And the trial court essentially relied on its own findings about what they called a non-elemental fact to increase a defendant's maximum sentence in violation of the Sixth Amendment. So when the statute is not divisible, what can the trial court look at? Nada, uh, other than the verdict or plea form itself. This was originally a Ninth Circuit case, and the High Court specifically rejected the Ninth Circuit view that the court could look to reliable materials, the charging documents, jury instructions, plea colloquy, and so forth, to determine what facts can confidently be thought to underlie the defendant's conviction in light of the prosecutorial theory of the case and the facts put forward by the government. This has become significant because a lot of the language here parallels the language used by the California Supreme Court in McCoy when talking about proving priors in California. The DeComp Court criticized the Ninth Circuit for adopting this approach, an approach that would require the courts to expend resources examining often aged documents for evidence that a defendant admitted in a plea colloquy or uh, evidence that a prosecutor showed at trial facts that, although unnecessary to the crime of conviction, satisfy an element of the relevant generic offense. Well, that is all well and good, Jeff, but are we bound by how the United States Supreme Court wants to interpret a federal statute? Yes and no. The, the rule... Uh, adopted by the Supreme Court in Decomp was based on three grounds. That it, it, it was comported with the federal statute's text and history. Two, it avoided the Sixth Amendment concerns that would arise from sentencing courts making findings of fact that properly belong to juries. And three, it averted the practical difficulties and potential unfairness of a factual approach. It is that second rationale, the basis in the Sixth Amendment right to jury trial that California appellate courts have focused on in deciding that at least some aspects of the analysis in DeComp applies to proving prior convictions in California. So has DeComp been interpreted to have any bearing on the way prosecutors prove prior convictions in California? Yes. Several appellate court cases have relied on DeComp to either raise questions about whether prosecutors may prove anything beyond the mere fact of a conviction to a judge and or to actually find that prosecutors are, in certain circumstances, barred from proving certain aspects of a prior conviction to a court. The first of these cases was a case called People versus Wilson. So what happened in Wilson? Well, in that case, a defendant was charged with causing injury while driving intoxicated in violation of Vehicle Code Section 23153 and a gross vehicular manslaughter while intoxicated in violation of 191.5. Now, this occurs back in 1993. And in this 1993 case, uh, it had gone to PX, where it was established that after the defendant and his girlfriend had picked up a hitchhiker, the defendant drove off the highway. The resulting crash caused the death of the hitchhiker and serious injuries to the girlfriend. At that time, in speaking with a motorist who arrived at the scene of the crash, the defendant claimed his girlfriend grabbed the steering wheel. He later denied driving. The girlfriend ends up testifying at the PX. She was sleeping when the accident occurred. 
Now, in argument back at that 1993 PX, the defendant specifically challenged the evidence of causation, arguing that his statements at the scene of the accident showed his girlfriend had grabbed the steering wheel. In other words, she caused the accident. Eventually, though, the defendant pled no contest to both charges after the PX. Well, six years after that, the defendant was arrested for drunk driving, and the two prior convictions that stemmed from his, that, that prior offense were alleged to strike priors. After the defendant was found guilty at jury trial on the new offense, he waived his right to a jury trial on the fact of the prior conviction, but not on the facts required to prove the strike prior. The trial judge then held a bench trial on the strike priors. The prosecution introduced, among other documents, the transcript of the preliminary hearing to show those priors constituted serious felonies or strike priors under the three strikes law. Now, the trial court had to find that the, that the offense involved the personal infliction of great bodily injury on any person other than an accomplice. It did so, but the appellate court reversed that finding on the, on, on the prior for gross vehicular manslaughter on two grounds. Let's start with the first ground. What was that? Well, the Wilson court held the sentencing judge violated state law under People v. McGee, which only allows examination of the record to determine if the prior offense is of a type that subjects the defendant to increased punishment and doesn't contemplate the court will make an independent determination regarding a disputed issue of fact relating to the defendant's prior conduct. The Wilson court held that the sentencing judge could probably find someone had suffered GBI because that's implied in the elements of the offense. But the sentencing judge could not properly resolve whether the defendant had personally inflicted GBI. That was a disputed fact. The Wilson court said the conviction itself didn't establish personal infliction of great bodily injury, only that the defendant proximately caused the great bodily injury, the great bodily injury being death. And in light of his claim his girlfriend had grabbed the steering wheel, it was disputed whether he actually personally inflicted great bodily injury. So what was the second reason? The Wilson court noted that the only facts in the record, apart from those that were necessarily implied by the elements of the offense, were those found in the transcript of the preliminary hearing. And that transcript reflected competing versions of key facts on the issue of personal infliction. So it held the sentencing court could not have increased the defendant's sentence without having to make a disputed determination of fact. And since the, that the sentencing court had to do that, it violated the Sixth Amendment as interpreted in Apprendi and Decomp. Did the Wilson court find that Decomp effectively overruled the California Supreme Court case in McGee, allowing courts to look through the record of conviction, including things like preliminary examination transcripts, to determine the specific nature of the conviction? No. But the next three cases pretty much did. In People v. Saez, an appellate court uh, case that came out this year, the trial court had relied on a complaint from a Wisconsin prior conviction that included a police officer's sworn statement. Reliance on that statement was necessary uh, for the trial court to find that the defendant had used a firearm in the commission of the crime of false imprisonment. Without that probable cause statement, that couldn't be shown and the prior conviction couldn't be used to enhance. Did the Saez appellate court find that it was proper for the sentencing judge to rely on those records in order to determine that the Wisconsin prior was a serious felony and a strike? Well, the Saez court held reliance on those records was proper under California law. 
They rejected the defense argument that the officer's statement was inadmissible hearsay and not part of the record of conviction. Why did they find the statement was not hearsay? Don't the normal rules of hearsay generally apply to evidence admitted as part of the record of conviction to show the conduct underlying the conviction? Well, Dan, I don't want to spend too much time on why the court ruled on the question of whether the proof of the prior was proper under state law, because this whole show is trying to focus on the Sixth Amendment issue. But basically, they found that it wasn't hearsay because the statements of the officer were not being considered for the truth of their assertion. In other words, they weren't being offered to show the defendant pointed a gun at the victim while restraining the, while restraining the victim. Rather, they were offered to show the basis of the conviction, since the defendant had explicitly stipulated that the criminal complaint, which included this affidavit, and that's key here, was the factual basis for his guilty plea. And so the officer's statements could be used to demonstrate the basis of the conviction, regardless of whether the defendant actually did what the officer described. How did the Saez court rule on whether reliance on the affidavit violated the Sixth Amendment? Well, as I indicated, they found that it didn't violate California law, but it did violate the Sixth Amendment. And they said, look, the California and United States Supreme Courts have diverged on the limits of a sentencing court's ability to review the record of a prior conviction in determining whether the conviction can be used to increase a sentence under a statutory sentencing enhancement scheme. They believe that the holding of Decomp signaled the Sixth Amendment imposes restrictions on such review beyond those that had been recognized by the California Supreme Court in McGee, which had upheld looking at records relating to prior convictions that they said would not have been authorized under Decomp. Did they find Decomp overruled McGee? The Saez court held that while Decomp did not explicitly overrule McGee, Decomp's discussion of the Sixth Amendment principles that are applicable when prior convictions are being used to increase criminal sentences, they said uh, it was clear and unavoidable that's what they were, that they were saying, and that this view was adopted by eight of the nine justices on the high court. So the Saez appellate court believed it was compelled to apply those constitutional principles to the case before it. They pointed out when the defendant pled guilty to the crime, he waived his right to a jury determination of only that offense's elements. He hadn't admitted or waived his Sixth Amendment rights regarding the additional facts on which the strike finding was contingent, that he had personally used a firearm, and that the reckless use of a firearm occurred in the course of the false imprisonment. And his stipulation to the complaint as to the factual basis of the plea didn't constitute a waiver of his Sixth Amendment rights or constitute an admission as to those additional facts. Under our state statute, the court makes the determination of the identity of the person who suffered the prior conviction. Did the Saez court find this was improper too? No. D despite its reliance on Decomp, the Saez court rejected defendant's argument that the Sixth Amendment prohibited the trial court from making the identity finding. They held that aspect of the court's decision, of the lower court's decision, fell within the Almendarez-Torres exception. Jeff, you said there were three appellate cases finding Decomp applicable to trials on priors in California. What was the second case? That was People versus Marin, and it's also from uh, this year. What was the issue in Marin? There's a long procedural history which I'm not going to go through, but, but basically the, the Marin court had decided whether, had to decide whether judicial facts finding beyond the elements of the prior conviction that was permitted by the California Supreme Court in McGee survived the United States Supreme Court's interpretation of the Sixth Amendment jury trial right in Decomp. 
The Marin Court believed that the type of judicial fact-finding on prior convictions permitted under California law was virtually indistinguishable from the Ninth Circuit approach that the High Court disapproved of in Decomp. The kind of judicial fact-finding that occurs in California, they said, looks beyond the elements of the crime to the record of the conviction to determine what conduct, quote, realistically underlies the conviction and thus violates the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. However, the Marine Court also found the Sixth Amendment right is not violated when, in determining whether a prior conviction qualifies to increase a defendant's punishment, the trial court considers the indictment, jury instructions, plea colloquy, and plea agreement in order to determine the statutory elements of the crime of which the defendant was convicted. Moreover, despite what they had said earlier, they said under the reasoning of the comp, supplemented by its, uh, the comp's favorable treatment of this earlier case we, we mentioned, Shepard versus the United States, judicial fact-finding beyond the elements of the prior conviction would be permitted if, in entering the original guilty plea, the defendant waived his right to a jury trial as to such facts and either admitted them or they were found true by the court with defendant's assent. What about the third case then? That was People versus Denard, and that came out earlier this month. In Denard, the people tried to prove at a court trial that the defendant had previously been convicted in Florida for second-degree felony manslaughter, and that that conviction qualified as a strike prior under uh, Penal Code Sections 1170.12 and 667D. The prosecution introduced various documents, including a probable cause affidavit alleging facts in support of defendant's arrest for first-degree murder and armed burglary. It was only in the probable cause affidavit that the facts of the underlying crime were described, and it was necessary to consider that affidavit in order for the, the trial court to find that the conviction qualified as a strike prior. However, that probable cause affidavit was not made contemporaneously with the conviction. It was just a summary of witness statements from the initial investigation of the case, which had been prepared for the purposes of obtaining an arrest warrant for the defendant in Denard. Did the Denard court find it was proper for the trial court to rely on the probable cause affidavit? No, they held it was improper under both California law and the Sixth Amendment. Why under state law? Well, they pointed out that under California law, the documents reviewed must be part of the record of conviction. And the record of conviction can be viewed as the equivalent to the record on appeal, or more narrowly as referring only to those uh, documents reliably reflecting the facts of the offense for which the defendant was convicted. The Denard court held that the probable cause affidavit couldn't be considered part of the record of conviction because it consisted of multiple layers of hearsay reciting the facts of uncharged crimes, and, it, and, and because of that, it couldn't be deemed a reliable account of the conduct underlying the, def, underlying the offense for which the defendant had been convicted. And they also found uh, it, was, it was improper because it set forth a factual basis for arresting defendant for two crimes for which he was neither charged nor convicted. Why do they find reliance on the probable cause affidavit would violate the Sixth Amendment? Well, they basically agreed with the conclusions of the court in Saez and Marin that the California procedure for determining whether prior convictions qualify as strikes insofar as it's based on judicial fact-finding beyond the elements of the offense, 
is incompatible with the United States Supreme Court view of the Sixth Amendment right to jury trial as that right was uh, described in Decom. They said that the trial court, by looking at the probable cause affidavit as the basis for determining that defendant's second-degree felony murder, uh, rather felony manslaughter conviction, was a strike under California law, they said by doing that, the trial court violated the Sixth Amendment. Okay. So in light of Decomp and these recent California cases that you've just told us about, what documents may the prosecution safely rely on in proving the fact defendant had suffered a prior conviction either by plea or trial? Okay. So we're getting down now to some of the uh, critical questions in light of the holding in Decomp. Decomp should not prevent a prosecutor from proving the mere fact a defendant suffered a prior conviction to a court by introducing a certified copy of a verdict or a plea form. A court can then decide the legal issue of whether the elements of a crime for which the defendant suffered the conviction match the elements of the crime allowing for the prior conviction to be used as an enhancement. For example, a trial court could look at a verdict form showing the defendant was convicted of a crime in Utah and determine whether the statutory elements of that crime exactly matches or necessarily includes all the elements of a California crime like assault with a deadly weapon on a, pe- on a peace officer. That would allow the out-of-state conviction to be considered a strike for purposes of the three strikes law. All right, that was the easy question. How about telling us when a court may look at additional documents beyond the mere verdict or plea form to prove a prior conviction? A court can look at additional documents like indictments and jury instructions if the conviction stem from a trial or plea agreements or transcripts of the colloquy between the judge and the defendant if the conviction stemmed from a plea without violating the Sixth Amendment right to jury trial if the prior conviction was for a divisible crime, a crime that, as we discussed earlier, sets out one or more elements of the offense in the alternative, and one alternative matches the element of the crime allowing for the enhancement, but the other alternative does not. So let's say the Utah statute in question could alternatively be violated by assault with a deadly weapon on a peace officer, firefighter, or physician. In that circumstance, would the Utah statute be considered a divisible statute? Yes, it would be divisible vis-a-vis the serious felony of assault with a deadly weapon on a peace officer in California. That is, it sets out one or more elements of the offense in the alternative but only one alternative matches the elements of the California serious felony of assault with a deadly weapon on a peace officer. If the verdict or plea form from Utah only referred to the conviction of the statute by reference to a code section without any further distinction, it would be permissible and consistent with the Sixth Amendment for the sentencing judge to also consider the charging document and the jury instructions provided at trial if the conviction followed a trial or the plea agreement and records of the plea colloquy if the conviction followed a guilty or no contest plea. Could any other kinds of documents beyond that be considered by the court? That's not as clear. In People v. Marin, the court indicated that the sentencing court could consider, without violating the Sixth Amendment, documents reflecting an admission by the defendant to the court regarding a specific fact, or an explicit factual finding by the, by the trial judge of during that prior conviction to which the defendant assented. In contrast, though, in Shepard versus the United States, the United States Supreme Court held police reports or complaint applications could not be considered in figuring out whether a prior burglary conviction qualified for an enhancement 
under the federal statute allowing increased punishment for prior convictions of the generic burglary, at least where the report or complaint applications were not explicitly incorporated into the plea agreement or were not expressly made part of the factual basis for the plea. And then Johnson versus the United States, that's a United States Supreme Court case from 2010, a case that involved the question of whether a Florida battery statute qualified as a violent felony under the uh, federal statute. The court mentioned that the modified categorical approach would permit a court to determine elements based on findings of fact and conclusions from a bench trial. So that's a little bit more expansive. So subject to the divisible-indivisible distinction, as I understand it, we can look at charging documents, plea agreements, transcripts of plea colloquies, findings of fact and conclusions of law from a bench trial, and jury instructions and verdict forms to show a prior conviction qualifies as an enhancing prior. Is that right? Yes. Uh, but Dan, you have to keep in mind that even under this modified categorical approach, the one that's used when assessing whether a divisible offense qualifies as a crime, a court must not consider these documents in order to discover what the defendant actually did and then compare the conduct to the elements of the generic offense. Instead, the documents have to be examined only to determine which alternative element was the basis for the conviction. Just to be clear, Jeff, what can we consider if the prior conviction was for the violation of an indivisible statute? For example, a statute that does not contain alternative elements and criminalizes a broader swath of conduct than the relevant generic offense. No documents other than the actual record of conviction, in other words, the verdict or plea form, simply showing what statute the defendant was convicted of. So let's say the Utah statute in question simply made it unlawful to commit an assault with a deadly weapon. It encompassed all assaults with a deadly weapon, regardless of who the victim of the assault was. In other words, it criminalizes a broader swath of conduct than the serious felony of assault with a deadly weapon on a peace officer. In that circumstance, would the Sixth Amendment prohibit a judge from looking at anything other than the elements of the Utah statute itself? Yes. Uh, under the analysis of DeComp, a judge could not review the charging document, jury instructions, or plea colloquy for evidence that the person who was assaulted was a peace officer. But keep in mind that the law regarding how much of the decomp analysis is tied to the Sixth Amendment and how much is tied to the specific federal statutory scheme at issue in decomp is not yet settled. For example, one of the new California appellate cases, People v. Saez, it disagreed that this divisible, indivisible approach that had been discussed in decomp for establishing prior convictions under the ACCA, the federal statute, they said they didn't know whether or not that was necessarily required in determining strikes under the California Three Strikes Law. Why? Well, they said this divisible versus indivisible dichotomy springs in large part from the federal statute's focus on the elements of the prior conviction, which, unlike the Three Strikes Law, prohibits consideration of the conduct underlying the conviction. The Sayers Court stated it could conceive of situations in which an examination of the record could establish that elements of a strike were found true beyond a reasonable doubt in the prior proceeding, even though the underlying statute was indivisible in the decomp sense. From a constitutional standpoint, does the fact a prior conviction is being proved to a jury instead of a court 
change what may be relied upon in proving the prior conviction? You know, there's no indication in DeComp or these California appellate court cases following DeComp that the documents traditionally relied upon in proving prior convictions may not be relied upon when proving the prior conviction to a jury. And uh, no indivisible versus divisible analysis is required where there's a jury trial on the prior convictions. Jeff, in proving prior convictions at trial, should a prosecutor consistent with the current statutory scheme ask a court to make all findings regarding a prior conviction other than the determination as to whether the documents establishing the conviction are authentic and are sufficient to establish that the convictions the defendant suffered are the ones alleged? No, we should be wary in allowing the court to do that. In light of DeComp and the recent appellate decisions, prosecutors, as a safety precaution, should always first seek a waiver of both the Sixth Amendment and any other constitutional right to jury trial, as well as the statutory right to jury trial on all aspects of proving a prior conviction. What if the defendant will not waive jury trial on all aspects? Well, then seek a waiver at a minimum of the constitutional right to proving the identity of the defendant and of as many other aspects of proving the prior as possible. You know, the defense may be willing to waive jury trial on some facts surrounding the prior conviction, but not others. If the defendant will not waive jury trial and the court's going to be asked to do anything more than look at the document establishing the conviction and decide whether the elements of the prior conviction match the elements of the enhancing prior, what should we do? You know, we're going to need to give close scrutiny to what type of judicial fact-finding will be involved. If the statute upon which the prior conviction is based is divisible, then it's probably okay to proceed with a court trial, so long as all that is issue, so long as all that is at issue is whether the alternative element of the statute was violated when defendant was convicted of the prior offense, and the necessary proof of the relevant matching elements can be established by reference to trial instructions or charging documents if the conviction followed a trial, or plea agreements or colloquies between the judge and the defendant if the conviction stemmed from a plea. What if the proof of a necessary element will depend on other types of documents than those? More caution should be exercised before proceeding by way of a court trial in that circumstance. For example, if infliction of GBI is a necessary element of showing a felony qualifies as a strike prior, but the defendant only pled guilty to the felony, reliance on a preliminary examination transcript uh, relating to that prior conviction to establish great bodily injury could potentially run afoul of the Sixth Amendment. What if the statute is not divisible and something more than the mere conviction itself must be established to prove the conviction qualifies as an enhancing prior? Okay, when when the statute is not divisible, the safer course is for a prosecutor to request a jury trial on the prior conviction if the defendant will not waive that right. Should prosecutors ask for a jury trial on defendant's identity, absent a waiver of any constitutional right to jury trial on that issue? Maybe. You know, it's an anomaly in California that the one issue that the jury is actually kind of suited to decide, whether the defendant is the person who suffered the conviction, is statutorily designated as a question for the court. Now, the only post-decomp decision to address that issue is People v. Saez, which held that the Almendarez-Torres exception, allowing Uh, proof of prior conviction, still permits a judge to make a finding that the defendant is the person named in the prior conviction, notwithstanding DeComp. But that analysis in Sayez, it's it's a little sparse. 
And I have to say, it's not that difficult to conceive of an argument that if there's a true question whether the defendant is the person named in the prior, then the court is making a disputed factual finding if they decided instead of the jury in contravention of the comp. So, all things considered, I think if there's no waiver of any constitutional right to this determination, you're probably safe for proving it to a jury. Although I gotta acknowledge that as with many issues in this area, you know, this is a developing area and we're just taking our best shot. We, we could be wrong about that one. If a defendant waives his statutory right to a jury trial on the priors, are we going to be okay in proving the prior conviction to the judge? No. Any waiver of the right to jury trial on the prior convictions should make it clear that the defendant is not only waiving his statutory right to jury trial, but is waiving his constitutional right to have a jury decide all aspects of the prior conviction. Under the statute, the jury is tasked with determining whether a conviction occurred. It is not tasked with determining the defendant was the person who suffered the conviction, nor is it tasked with determining any facts beyond the facts of whether the defendant suffered a conviction. Under DeComp and, its, and these other California uh, cases that have recently uh, applied DeComp, defendant may be entitled to a jury trial on aspects of the conviction other than simply whether the documents offered to prove the prior uh, occurred are authentic and are sufficient to establish that the convictions the defendant suffered are the ones alleged. So, a waiver of the right to jury trial on the fact that conviction occurred is not the same as a waiver of the constitutional right to jury trial on these other aspects of the conviction, like whether it's a serious felony because the defendant used a deadly weapon, or whether a foreign conviction qualified as a strike prior. Is there anything a prosecutor can do when taking pleas in order to avoid some of the problems created by the most recent case law interpretations of what DeComp requires? Well, we just need to make sure our charging documents and accompanying verdicts or pleas on any offense which could potentially be used later as an enhancing prior are as explicit as possible in establishing the trier of fact has found true the aspect of that conviction that will later render it eligible for enhancement. All right, Jeff, I see we're getting the cutoff sign from Kwong. So even though I'm sure we will be hearing more about the range of decomp, let's end our discussion for now. You got it, Dan. Thanks a lot for helping out. My pleasure.